The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. continuing to walk through Romans uh, this morning, all the way up to 11. We're going to pick up there in a bit, but before we do, we're going to make a stop in one place before we get to Romans. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you grab them? And instead of Romans yet, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. Um, if you don't have your Bible, as always, uh, there should be a hardback black or blue one around you. Feel free to follow with us there. If you're here this morning, you don't own a Bible, as always, we want to give you that one. So find one, find one that's in the best condition, take that one with you, and uh, we'd love to bless you that way. Um, all right, I'd like to begin with a story before we get to Romans. Uh, a story that will work kind of as a metaphor. It'll probably be a story that is somewhat familiar to you. Uh, but it's a story that Jesus told. And so I want to I pick up here in Luke 15. We're going to start in verse 11. Jesus tells this story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me uh, the share of the property that's coming to me. Divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine came arose in that country, and he began to, to, to be in need. So he, he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. So we see the physical effects of stupidity um, coming in here. And, and look where he is. He's in a, in, in a, in a pig field. He's dirty. He, he smells. He's starving. He's desperate. Verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. It's gross. Uh, and, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here, hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, notice here, notice the attitude of the son here. I will go to him. I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And um, he arose and came to his father. We talk about brokenness here. Um, here, this young brother recognizes his mess, his sin, his brokenness, his stench, his need. And he comes to the father not with any kind of entitlement. There's no entitlement here. He, he comes to the Father. He doesn't say, look, Father, how awesome I am. Like, he doesn't say that. What he does is he realizes he is not worthy. He comes pleading for mercy. And oh, mercy, how sweet this is. 
But while he was still a long way off, the text says, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father didn't hesitate. The father had compassion. The father embraced him, verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on, shoes on his feet, bring the fattest calf and kill it, and let us party, let us celebrate, let us eat. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to party. Your translation probably says celebrate. The party began. I love this story. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. We once were dead, but now we are alive. We once were lost, but now we are found. We come to our God in brokenness and sin, and he embraces us. He holds us. He runs. His, his heart is filled with compassion for us, celebrates our salvation. And as we hear this story, for any follower of Jesus, we will no doubt, we should no doubt be able to relate to the younger brother. And praise God for that. And the father, how about the father in this parable? Like, directs our focus directly to our heavenly father who is rich in love, abounding in steadfast love. Embraces us. Praise God for that. But listen, what's the purpose of this parable? If you notice, the parable doesn't end where I stopped. Um, Jesus could have ended his story right there, but he, but he didn't. He, he, he didn't. Um, we, we could have ended the story right there. We could have related to the younger brother, being drawn into the heavenly father, the end. Jesus doesn't end there because this is not the story of one brother. Jesus said in verse 11, there once was a man who had two sons. Two sons. Church, this is a story of two. The purpose of the story doesn't end here because Jesus hasn't finished telling this parable. Verse 25, now his older brother the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard the music. He heard the dancing. He heard that party, and he, and he called one of his servants and asked, what is going on, uh, what these things meant? And he said to him, your brother's come. Your father has, filled, has killed the fattened calf, and because he has received him back safe and sound, right? So the brother hears the news of his lost brother coming home, and he sees the party, and, and, and he wonders, you know, what's going on? Does he join in? No. Verse 28. But he was angry. He was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, listen to this, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat. And I might celebrate with my friends. Wah, wah. you got to kind of think of this with a bit of a whiny voice. Um, verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you, you killed a fattened calf for him? 
And he said to him, the father says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is, is yours, and it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Okay, there's so much here for this. Um, but I, I do not believe that this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, is a story of one brother. It's a story of two. It's a story of two. The younger brother lost in his sin and stupidity. Pleading for mercy and coming to the Father. Pleading for mercy. And the older brother lost in his own self-righteousness and jealousy. Self-righteousness that would lead him to say, Father, look at all the things I have done. Look at all the years I have served you. I never disobeyed anything. Look how good I am. Like, like, I'm not ridiculous like my younger brother is. I am worthy. He is not. I'm at least more worthy than he is, and he has a party. You see the self-righteousness. I am the worthy one, and the jealousy is the part that you read with the wah-wah voice. Um, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You never threw me a party. You never did this for me. Um, and shouldn't I, because of how good I am, shouldn't, shouldn't I get a party? And instead of joining, the older brother just hunkered down on his sense of self-righteousness and led to anger and jealousy. And he was jealous of the father's compassion. Now, um, I think it can be easy to think about this, this parable as the parable of the lost young brother, the compassionate father, prodigal son, whole thing. Absolutely true, but I don't want to miss that, that, that this story is bigger than that. We're going to use this story as a bit of a me metaphor. So with that story fresh in our minds, I want you to journey with me now over to Romans. Romans 11, with that younger brother, and all of his brokenness and sin, the older brother, and all of his self-righteousness and jealousy, and the father, and all of his compassion and love, with that in our mind, let's look at our text in verse 11 this, this morning of, of chapter 11. Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Same thing Paul does all throughout his his, his letter here. This is Paul's main way that he communicates. He, he asks the question in our mind and then emphatically answers it with a by no means, does the same thing here uh, this week. And if you remember, we're coming off of an especially difficult text uh, that we looked at last week. We're coming off of a text that said, hey, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Verse 7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened coming off of this text last week that talked about God giving them the spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then Paul finishes verses 9 and 10 saying, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And so from this, we have to be left thinking, well, what now, God? Like, what now? What was this all for nothing? Did Israel miss it completely? Or is it all done? Did the plan fail? And right to this, Paul says, by no means. By no means. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? 
Did Israel mess up and stumble forever? Um, did they miss it? Is it over now? Is it done? Did they fall beyond recovery? At the heart of it, here's the question. After all that hardening of the heart that we talked about last week, after all of that that we've read over the past couple verses, is it now hopeless? That's the question. And Paul answers it. By no means. When God makes a plan, when he makes a promise, he does not ever say whoops. I don't know the theological term for that. We'll just call it whoops theology. He doesn't do that, okay? He does not say whoops ever. His promises are sure. They are yes and amen always. He does not make mistakes. His plan does not and will never fail. Did they fall beyond recovery? By no means, Paul says. Is this without hope? By no means, Paul says. And then Paul makes this curious statement. He says, rather, or instead, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous, Paul says, rather, through their, that is Israel's trespass, through their, specifically, if you remember back to last week, Paul is, is specifically calling out those within the, the, the unbelievers within the people of Israel. We use this, this uh, does this work? Hopefully it does. Yes, it does. Thank you. Um, we use this last week to help with this. So we have the, the Jewish people as a whole, okay? The Jewish people as a whole. Then we have this group within the Jewish people that Paul calls the remnant. And, and these are the people within the people, as he talked about. These are the people who trust Christ through faith within the people. And then you have these, which Paul, in our previous text, called the rest. These are the people who do not trust Christ, do not place their faith, but instead place their faith in themselves, their works, what they do, where they were born. You have the remnant and the rest, like we talked about last week. The difference between these is faith. So we looked at this last week. So when Paul says it was through their trespass, the there are these guys, okay? The there, it was through their trespass, he's referring to the rest, the non-remnant. Paul says their trespass pointing back to their unbelief, pointing to the tendency of this group toward self-righteousness, pointing to the tendency of this group to think Ultimately, it's pride, if we just call it what it is, um, to, to trust themselves over, over Christ. And Paul says that through their unbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Only God can do this. Only God can take what is not good and use it for the good. Only God can do this. I, I'm drawn back to Romans 8, 28 that says, you know that for those who love God... All things work together for, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We, we see this. We get a picture of God here even using their trespass for good. See him working all things together for the glory. Only God, only God uses broken things like this 
and can bring it for, together for the good. That means that no matter what we face, only our God can turn all things to work all things together for the good. And this is exactly what we see here. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. All right, I'm about to give a spoiler alert, but that's okay. This is not my text, but we're going to get there. Um, but Paul, when Paul says salvation has come to the Gentiles, there is something profoundly beautiful here that is taking place. And something that I would venture to say affects most of us, if not all of us in this room. God's plan, as we see, and as we will continue to see in this chapter, is to graft the Gentiles in. To graft the Gentiles in by grace through faith through the perfect work of Christ. This is the plan, not a new plan, but the plan. So if we see here, we see here, the Gentiles are grafted into this. The Gentiles, what Paul is saying, are being grafted into the remnant. Grafted in as their faith is placed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. If, if you're here and you follow Jesus, you're a Gentile, this is you. Grafted in. You don't have to turn with me here, but I'm going to geek out for a little bit. In, in Ephesians 2, uh, 12, it says, Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's who we were. But, 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 but. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. God and, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is what Paul is talking about. I don't know if you've ever just come to a, a text and, and just get overwhelmed and, and, to use my previous term, to geek out a little bit. Allow me to geek out just a little more. I cannot stop here. So just go with me here. And he that is Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and member of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple to the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's who we are. Through the work of Jesus Christ, that is who we are. In Christ, we are the remnant. We are the remnant. 
Gentiles are being grafted in, one body, together. And that's the salvation of the Gentiles that Paul points to here. He says it in our text. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Then he makes this statement. We need to poke on it a little bit. So as to make Israel jealous. In other words, um, in other words, as this happens, as that happens, as Gentiles are being grafted in, the question is, how is this going to impact these guys? How is it going to impact the rest? As the scrappy, dirty, stinky younger brother comes home. As the foolish younger brother shows up, stank and all, and gets welcomed in, and as the party begins, and as the father embraces him, how is that going to impact the older brother? How is that going to impact the rest? Remember Jesus' words in the parable. He was angry. He refused to go in. Look, I've served you. I've done it. I've never disobeyed. We have the law. Father, you never gave me a young goat. We don't throw parties for me. See, self-righteousness and jealousy begin to be exposed. And it's such an incredible picture of what is happening, church, in our text. Salvation to the Gentiles so that Israel becomes jealous. For all the people of Israel, they look and they say, look, for all these years we have been your people, God. We've been your people, your covenant people. We've had your law. We've had your prophets. We've been your people for all these years. We're way better than those guys. We're way better than, than the younger brother over there. We're way better. How could they get it? How could they get it? How could you let them in? How can you throw a party for them? In so many ways, Paul is bringing out here what we see Jesus warn us of in the prodigal son. The parable of the two brothers. God used the Gentiles being brought in to make the Jewish people jealous. And we read that and we think, how could that be? Listen, I'm a dad I have three awesome little boys. I am not a perfect dad. Far from it, okay? Far, far from it. And yet, even I, as a very unperfect dad, even I know that it is not the best parenting move to punish your kids by trying to make them jealous of the other ones. Like my, uh, I have three boys, like I said, when one of them gets in trouble, my first instinct is never to go and hug and, and like compliment the other two so that the other one in trouble gets really jealous. That's weird. I, if you do that, I'm sorry, it's weird. It's not good, it's not shepherding their heart. It's provoking them. We get that on a human level. We get that's why you won't find books in the parenting section of a bookstore on how to make your kids jealous of each other. We get that as human parents. Punitive jealousy, not good. Church, how much more true is that 
with our heavenly and perfect Father. We see here, this jealousy, it is not punitive. It is not discipline. It is not to, to bad spank them, if you know what I mean. It's not to discipline that way. That's not what we see. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. What we read here is that God stirred their hearts to jealousy. And why did he do it? To save them. That more would be drawn to Jesus and that more would be saved. We read this in verses 13 and 14 and much more. But we'll start with our text. It says, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as that I'm apostle to the Gentiles and magnify my ministry, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And why? And thus save some of them. You see the tone? This is not a punitive jealousy. It's jealousy for the purpose of drawing their hearts. Um, if we take this in, if we, if we see this, God used the trespass of the rest to save the Gentiles. And then in this verse, what does it say? God used the saving of the Gentiles to make the rest jealous as to save the rest. You see this? You see how the heart of the Father on display saves the Gentile because of the trespass of the rest. And the saved Gentiles then stoke jealousy in the rest, which would then save more of them. Only our God can work all things together for the good, Amen. the way this text puts it out for us. Only our God. And in speaking of working all things together for the good, verse 12, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Church, Paul points forward here to something beautiful. He points forward here to hope. He says, now if their trespasses means riches for the world, their failure means riches for the Gentiles. As we said, that's what God used to, to the trespass of the Jewish people to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And by the way, those are some of the best riches we could possibly know. The best riches we could possibly know. But then Paul says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Church, we need, to, we need to unpack this a little bit. What is Paul pointing forward to here? Church, Paul here is pointing forward to hope for the rest. I want to unpack this a, a, a little again. I, I want to show you kind of what I'm pointing to here. Here's our picture again, the Jewish people. Um, we have seen that there's a remnant of faith right here. The people within the people, the people, the elect, the remnant of faith. Then Paul says that the Gentiles are being grafted in, brought in. Now, this, is, this grafting is because of faith. It's not it's not about the Gentiles being born into the right family. It's not about the Gentiles doing the right things. This grafting in is by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now through Jesus, the Gentiles are grafted in. And now here, in this text, here is the hope that now Paul gives us on top of this. That one day, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, we don't know, the, we don't know a lot, which is kind of par for the course for us. We don't know a lot. 
But one day, Israel, the rest, will be restored. In other words, God is not done. Now hear me, don't you dare think that this arrow is here because these guys are going to get here because they're born in the right family. Don't you dare think that the rest are going to get here because they do the right things and fulfill the law finally. No, 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 no. Paul points to the future restoration of all people, restoration of the rest and it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To put this into the words of our text, here's what I want you to see. Last week, we talked about the hardening of the rest, the hardening of their hearts. Paul just, he described the hardening of the hearts. And what, what, what he, he said is that the hardening of the hearts will draw Gentiles in. But even more than that, the hardening of the hearts will not last forever. Will not last Forever. God is not done. God will use the softening of their hearts in our text to, in an even more spectacular way to draw more to Jesus. Paul is pointing forward to the hope of rest restoration in Christ. That hardened hearts will be softened. And Paul's point here is this. If God used the hardening of the rest as a blessing to the whole world, how much more imagine what he will do with their belief. That's Paul's argument here. That's Paul's, it's an incredible message of hope. And if you were to think back to, to Luke 15, the parable, I want to draw on the father's words here. As the younger brother returned, and as the older brother was driven to jealousy, the older brother comes to the father again saying, look, I've served you, I've never disobeyed, you never gave me a goat, you never threw a party. And then the father says, listen, I'll put it this way. The father did not say, look, I just love your younger brother more. You know, I just care a lot more about him. And you know what, now that he's back, can you go feed the pigs? My love for him is so much greater. That wasn't what the father said. What the father said was this. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. What is he saying? He is saying, look, nothing has changed for you. Nothing has been taken from you, son. For the Jewish people, here's the truth of this text. Salvation is here. It is, by, it is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All that the Father has to offer is given through Christ. That will not change. And at the same time, for the Gentiles, for those who are not Jewish, here's the truth of the text. Salvation is here. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all that the Father has is offered to you now through Christ. And as we, we, we arrive here, I, I want to bring out just a couple things that are crystal clear. The first is this. Salvation is by grace alone. I've said this so many times this morning. I hope you picked up. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other name by which you can be saved, including your own. There's no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but by the Son. 
period. Period. No matter who you are, where you're from, the color of your, your skin, the size of your bank account, it does not matter. Jew or Gentile, there is no distinction under the sun that exempts us from this fact. None. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Listen, one day, you and I, we will stand before God. One day we will stand before the Lord. And in that moment, you will be empty-handed. You will have nothing to hold on to in your hands. You cannot hold out your accomplishments, your nationality, your attempts to be really good moral people. You, don't, you won't be able to hold it. When you stand before the Lord, we stand empty-handed. And the only question is, are you in Christ? Do you trust him? Do you believe him for your salvation? That is it. And the good news of the the gospel, the good news is that no matter what background you're from, no matter where you're from, no no matter who you are, no matter what, is that that good news meets us where we are. Whether you're the, the younger brother, and this morning you smell like pig, This morning you're wrestling and you're deep in sin and you're calling out in that sin saying, have mercy. It's also true for all the older brothers in the room, calling out deep in the mess of our self-reliance, deep in the mess of our our pride and self-righteousness. See, the gospel is that it meets us where we are and that salvation is by grace through faith. In Christ alone. We are called into the remnant because of Christ. Which brings me to the second thing, and that is this. God does not have a plan B. God does not have a plan B. We can read this text, and and we can read it and think, well, what happened? I mean, did it all get messed up? Did it all just blow up? And we can can think like, God, did you kind of have to go to the drawing board? Did you have to go figure it out again? No, what we see in this text is here is a reminder that God has one plan. His plan is perfect, it is good, and no plan of his can be thwarted by our sin or stupidity. Anything else. He is sovereign, and he works all things together for the good. And by the way, that's not only true for them back then. God does not change. Church, this is true for you and I today. You can trust that no matter what you face, no matter what you are facing right now, no matter what is going on, no matter what you're going to face, your God is still God. Your God is in control. Your God is sovereign. Listen, your God can see still, even when you can't. His plan has not changed. He loves you perfectly. He will not abandon you. He will work all things together for the good for those who are his. He does not have a plan B. His plan is perfect. His love is perfect. And God, listen to this. God is going to use everything that you are going through, everything that has happened to you. I am not saying that everything that happens is, is, is like good We go through very difficult things, painful things, things that are 
part of living in a fallen world, that things that we would say, God, it's not supposed to be like this. We go through those things. But here's the hope, that no matter what you go through, no matter how good or how painful, no matter what we go through, everything you face, God will use to accomplish the plan that he has set before you in his grace and love. Everything. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear me now. God's big and wonderful and amazing plan for you is is not to give you the best job, the best house, the best car, success, not to make sure you're healthy. God's big and glorious plan for you is way better than that. God's big, beautiful, and amazing plan for you is to use everything in this fallen world, to use everything in this fallen world to draw you closer to himself. That's his plan for your life, to draw you closer to him. And that is better than anything that this world has to offer. His plan is for you to find perfect satisfaction in him. There's a quote that I love by John Piper that says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you want to know, what is your plan for my life, God? It's to find your ultimate satisfaction in him. That is his plan for for you. And nothing, nothing, nothing can stop that or thwart that because our God works all things together for the good of those who he calls. So this morning, I'm talking to you. If you're wondering, if you're sitting here and you said, is he talking? Yes. I'm talking to you right here, right now, no matter where you're from. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is God's plan for you. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, whether you're the young brother or the old brother, this is his calling. And at the same time, you're God. He does not have a plan B. He never needs one. He never says whoops. He never makes mistakes. So hear me. To you young brothers in the room, run to the Father. Run to the Father. Run from the sin to which you're clinging to, leave that pigsty in the dust, run to the Father who will embrace you in his arms. With all the older brothers in the room. Run to the Father. Run to the Father. Run from the self-righteousness to which you cling. Leave the jealousy in the dust because all that the Father has is yours. Through Jesus Christ, run to the Father who will embrace you in his arms. 